is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 22, previewing the Fifth Global Nash Congress, which will take place in London on May 26th and 27th. This conversation focuses on some of the other preclinical and drug development methodology conversations at the Fifth Global Nash Congress. We spend time on topics like multidimensional pre-cut human liver slices and the kinds of information they can provide ex vivo that animal models cannot, the value of NITs, and how the exploration of combination therapies as compared to monotherapy might affect the trials you run and the value of some of these techniques. What made this episode so interesting and enjoyable for me was not only to consider some of the topics at the Congress, but also the different conversations that arose spontaneously from the surfers and our guests. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Are there any other papers or thoughts from the uh, pathogenesis and preclinical topics that are worth spending any time on? Jörn Schattenberg. I think, let me just, uh, let me just touch on the preclinical. I, there is a presentation by a scientist with Gilead, Aisha Oxley-Armlovich, and I said that wrong, and apologies for that. But they're discussing two-dimensional cell cultures and animal models to actually look at ectopic fat and fibrosis. And I think it's very interesting to AC Gilead Sciences here um, discussing human precision uh, cut liver slices and three-dimensional co-culture to study certain drug combinations and improve the understanding of cellular interactions. I think that that type of modeling and uh, Scott Friedman, when he uh, joined us here on the podcast, mentioned that once or twice is particularly interesting because you can look at the, in the context of the liver under the microscope, you actually take a, a slice from a liver culture at uh, ex vivo and then uh, expose it to drug and see what happens. I think that's very hands-on and, uh, and it, it teaches us a lot about things that happen in the liver, not necessarily the whole body insulin resistance, what happens to the adipose tissue, of course, but what, what happens at the level of liver cells. And I think that's a very nice pre clinical tool. And I thought that was interesting to have it at the program here. Louise Campbell. Just following up from Jean's and Jeff's conference in Barcelona, there's obviously Helena Cortez Pinto doing the NAFL pathway and the referral care pathway. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any difference within the sort of things that she brings up that have come out of the conference in Barcelona next weekend. Thanks, Louise. I want to jump back quickly to, to Jorn's comment. Jorn, when I read that brief description of the talk, what I was interested in as much as anything else was the last sentence. And I wonder how deep she's going to go into it because she says not only is she going to share the case, right, the Fergus that still affects her case, but then she said to comment on the potential for translational models in ex vivo, ex vivo translational models. I'm wondering what she'll be comfortable saying about that and what we can learn from that statement, because that's another area that isn't particularly plumbed yet, I don't think. At least it's what I read. A lot further you can go with it. Ian Rowe. I think that's the critical point, though, isn't it, Roger? The animal models can only take you so far. Jorn's published about why trials fail, and one of the reasons is that humans are different to mice, and a human precision cut liver slice is closer to a whole human than perhaps a mouse is, but it still lacks a lot of the other critical aspects of pathobiology, as, as Jorn says, the, everything outside the liver, functional immune system and, and everything else. In some ways, you might prefer a drug combination that had a clearer signal in a clinical trial to be able to really understand what a true positive drug impact was in a 
precision cut liver slice rather than the combination that they're testing. But I guess it'll go some way to try to understand how directly translatable outcomes are in that model to future clinical outcomes and trials. You're frowning. It looks like it looks like I've confused you. No, I'm thinking. But what I'm oh. thinking is, I'm going back to some of the conversations we've had. There's a real challenge with combination agents, right? With figuring out how you get from the hypothetical to the real. In some ways, that might be more of a challenge than it would be with a uh, single agent. Single agents are just cleaner to figure out. So I take your point that that might not be the perfect way to do this, but I think it was Churchill who said about democracy, once it's the worst system we have except for all the others or something equivalent to that. And I'm wondering whether ex vivo for combination therapy would be a similar thing, which is that it, it's a way of getting at some of the complexities that you'd have a hard time sorting out otherwise until you ran large trials. But again, I'm not a trial person. If any of you can just tell me that was um, silly or gracefully, correct me. But that's just how it struck me when I looked at it. But I mean, I guess there are some human trial data for those agents in monotherapy and in combination. And experimentally, I'd be very surprised if they don't present data for each of those drugs alone um, and then in combination to try and tease out the effects that you can see ex vivo and then the effects that you observed within the trial framework. I mean, it's a small trial, not necessarily easy to extrapolate the results, but still one would hope that you might be able to learn something from what they've done in terms of the translatability of that model. Yeah, I agree. And some of those are in clinical trial and the data has been presented by Naeem Al-Khoury previously, you know, combination with GLP-1s, for example, the drugs they're exploring or they have in their abstract there. I agree there's more to be learned from the clinical trials, but here at the mechanistically level uh, in the liver cells, I think that's just an interesting abstract and topic. Actually, and Moss had published on that, or they had publication actually published last week on one of the aspects of the triple study that I'm hoping, thinking we might decide to do an episode on at some point in the spring. I can, I can point to one more I'm kind of interested in, which is the Somalogic presentation the first morning on liquid liver biopsy. The reason I'm intrigued is if I recall correctly, Somalogic did better and it was it, was it one of the litmus where, where Somalogic clearly turned out to be the most robust of the systems they looked at. I'm not sure what this paper has to do with any of that because it's not crystal clear to me exactly what he's going to talk about, but I don't know nearly enough about them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to learn from that paper. Yeah, the fascinating thing about the proteomics analysis tools is that it gives us such a wealth of biomarker and then comes up with a final score. And that has been, interestingly enough, been pretty robustly done so in litmus. And we're going to see more data from the clinical trials because it's run along uh, this. And I mean, um, maybe Ian has also a thought on this because if we think about what we're doing today using FIB4 to rule in, to rule out, this is such a biomarker that captures so many different aspects of the disease. And sometimes it's the challenges on in how you get a surrogate score and how, how is that all come down in your patient? How, can, how are you going to use that data? I think as a treatment response marker, that, that could be one way forward. As a cross-sectional diagnostic tool, we're going to see more data on that bottom line. But again, the, the complexity of this biomarker is just very high with the, all those proteins that are being explored in that multiomic approach. I think that's right. One of the things that we're missing is the NASH response biomarker rather than you know, I mean, we're missing lots of response biomarkers, but a NASH response biomarker and data diagnostic would be really helpful. And it may be that that's where it might find its place. I mean, one of the issues is the complexity and trying to distill it down to a perhaps more palatable number of molecules that can be more readily understood might might help in terms of at least conceptualization and people's understanding of what, what it's doing. But I think it's definitely an interesting program that they've got. And the, and the data, as you say, are in litmus are, are very strong. But then on the other hand, the scientists like 
like Rachel can teach us. I mean, there are many more things than a physician's simple mind can understand. You know, we look at one biomarker and try to link that to the patient. Of course, the complexity of the technologies and the, and the biomarkers that are being in clinical development is much higher. And maybe we do not need to, we have to clearly link it to the disease. I think that's important. And we're, we're learning more. And maybe this talk is going to educate us on this uh, more. And in an ideal world, we'll link it to an outcome. Okay. So we're going to not be interested in liver biopsy at all, but we have this biomarker and, and then see what happens to the patient prediction. As uh, Rachel said, maybe this could be held up for microbiome and cirrhotic patients, or it could be such a biomarker as he presented here within the somologic um, analysis. And then we can make calls on what would be uh, the right path forward for that patient. Rachel Zayas. Yeah. And let, let me follow up on that just from a general standpoint. I think that it is of vital importance that we take an integrative genomic approach. So we don't just look at the transcriptome and derive insights from just looking at RNA sequencing data, but rather looking at the transcriptome and various aspects of the human genome, such as the epigenome and more specifically the methylome, and ensuring that these aspects occur concurrently because we all know that NASH has a high degree of heterogeneity. So a gene upregulated in one patient could be downregulated in another. So when you're taking a multiple omic approach, you can look at what's truly occurring concurrently and then derive insights for clinical outcomes, for diagnosing, prognostics, um, and, and so on. So I think for a long time, we've approached these tools quite simplistically. So it's nice to hear that we're being more strategic and understanding their outcomes. With that, Roger, if I can switch gears, and I wanted to mention another talk that I am interested in hearing. On day two, Stefano Gianni Corradini from Rome, Italy, is giving a talk on liquid droplets and genetic epigenetic susceptibility in NAPLD. And they're looking at different types of static hepatocytes based off of size of, of droplets and epigenetic markers associated. So I'm really excited for this talk. And I really think that the epigenome is starting to emerge front and center on susceptibility of disease, as well as predicting long-term outcomes. And I think it's about time that we use these tools appropriately. So I'm excited to hear about this talk. And what's interesting about this is it looks like the studies that he has published are directly from liver tissue data. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what that looks like, because then we can start to quantify what's going on directly on the liver. And the next steps, which I'm personally excited for, is can we quantify these markers in, in circulation and how? So he talks about different microvesicles and macro vesicles and the size quantification of each. So I'm interested to see what he proposes for next steps from these findings. Hey, Rachel, that's great. We're going to lose you in a minute or two. I know I want to ask you one question real quickly and then everyone let everyone else comment on that. This is a slightly different question. I want to raise it. Going back to yours comment, how much of the science at the level you're talking about, do you feel physicians need to understand? A, physicians need to understand in order to be able to treat and B, physician researchers need to understand in order to be able to do a better job on drug development and assessing what the results of their studies mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I see this often. I, I work with graduate students in, in the DC area, and there's so much happening so fast that I think that physicians need a crash course every six months to understand what the new and most effective methods are. And without those crash courses, or at least spending 
a weekend, really understanding what has changed in the last few months, we're, we're limiting what we can do for patients. Because if we're just using epigenetics as a genetic susceptibility, we're missing out on a world of opportunity, everything from diagnostics to therapeutics. And I think it's just, there's such a limited and lack of communication between the clinical world and what's really going on on the grounds in the research world. So I think several crash courses are important multiple times a year because things are changing rapidly. Even as a geneticist myself, I get lost in the complexities. And I think that if physicians could just at least actively reach out, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if there needs to be specific courses, but I think we're missing aspects of of the conversation right now. So we need to do better. I don't know what that looks like, but that's a great question. I'm not sure how often I would need that, but sign me up. Yeah, that was kind of what I heard you're in between between you and Ian on how much of it do you need to know? And the answer is some of it, not all of it. And you can't keep up with it fast enough. And now back to Roger. I hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Louise Campbell and Rachel Zayas will be at the Fifth Global Nash Congress next month in London, and we will have an episode with Jorn, Louise, Rachel, perhaps some other speakers, and me after the Congress. Next week, we will be back with Andrew Scott from Global Liver Institute and Achim Kautz from Germany to take a holistic view of the patient advocate role in fatty liver disease. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>